How great is the Lord Jesus Christ? And let me paraphrase that. How great is the Lord Jesus Christ to you personally? How great is he? Uh, if you went around and interviewed people that know you very well, your work colleagues, your family and friends, people in this fellowship that perhaps know you, uh, if we interviewed your neighbors, okay, and we asked them, think of X, you know, think of Mark. How great is Jesus to Mark? How great is Jesus to James? How great is Jesus to them? I wonder what those people would say about you. How great they think you regard Christ. Uh, You see, it is very easy for us to sing, Jesus is mine. We sang Blessed Assurance there. It's very easy for us to say great prayers, to say, Jesus, our mighty God, our Prince of Peace. It's very easy for us to say that with words. And yet treat Jesus as a nobody in our lives. In, in a real tangible way, treat him, treat him as a noble. You see, true worship of Jesus is not only shouting and singing, Jesus is great. By living lives that truly honor him as our great God and Savior. And we can never honor our Lord Jesus as great until we begin to appreciate deep down our hearts just how truly great Jesus is. You see, when we appreciate the greatness of Jesus, all our being will long to love and worship and honor him. We will strive to show his greatness in everything we do. When we know Jesus is great, we respond kindly to our spouses because all our relationships will honor the greatness of Jesus. When we know Jesus is great, we would strive to be with his people. Why? Because the church is a precious bride of our great Savior, Jesus. You see, when we know Jesus is great, we look for opportunities to tell others about him. To show others just how amazing Jesus is and what fantastic good news the Lord Jesus Christ is. Those things happen when we know in our hearts that Jesus is truly great. This morning we began a series in Mark. Uh, we looked at Mark verse one, chapter 1, verse 1 to 3. And do you remember the question we asked? The question was, what is so good about Jesus? And what we answered, what Mark answered for us is that Jesus is so good because Jesus is God among us as our Savior King. That's what we learned in the first three verses of chapter 1. Well, this evening, we are continuing with verse 4 to verse 8. And what Mark wants to show us here is another good thing about Jesus. An amazing thing about Jesus. And it is that Jesus is the greatest servant of God. And Mark, interesting enough, teaches this wonderful truth through the eyes of John the Baptist. Look with me at verse for there. And the first truth we learn here uh, this evening, first of all, starts with John. John is a great servant of God. John the Baptist is a great servant of God. And Mark starts off this narrative like a wonderful film director. Uh, imagine with me for a second we are out in the Judean countryside. 
uh, it is stretching 1,500 square kilometers. And now we are on the eastern edge of this desert. We are by the river Jordan. And as we look closely, we can see a man, a man, John the Baptist, looking very strangely. He has appeared in the desert, preaching the good news. Look at verse 4. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, Verse 2 to 3, which we looked at this morning, had reminded us actually that this man, John, has been appointed by God to make the way for God himself to appear in person. We saw that, isn't it? That John has come to make an highway for the Lord Jesus Christ. John is basically Jesus' peer agent. And we know also from Luke that John is born great. He's born as a great man. He was anointed with the Spirit of God from birth, and his father, Zechariah, prophesied this about him. Luke chapter 1, verse 76 to 79. This is what his father said. Uh, My dad never said this about me. This is what his father said about John, because John is very great. Look at this. And you, child, this is Luke 1, verse 76 to 79. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. Do you see that? The prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. To give the knowledge of salvation to his people. In the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God. Whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. To give light to those who sit in darkness. And in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And listen to what Luke goes on to say in verse 80 of Luke 1. And the child, that is John, grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And so we are now back to Mark 1. And we see that John has made this grand entrance that that, that Luke talked about. He has appeared on the world stage as a prophet of the Most High God. And he's an amazing preacher. Everyone is flocking to hear him. We can't call John the Billy Graham of this time because, I mean, Billy Graham is nothing compared to John. This is John. He's causing a mighty earthquake spiritually. The greatest spiritual awakening. Isaiah had never seen it. Ezekiel had never seen it. And John has arrived. And everyone is flocking to him to go to the desert to hear him. Look at verse 5. And all the country of Judea, Mark 1 verse 5. And all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. To have so many people attend the desert, a crusade in the desert, is a miracle. I mean, just to have enough, few people attend the evening service is a miracle. I mean, can you imagine what John here? People are breathing the heat to go out there to hear him. It's a miracle. And you know what is even a bigger miracle? It's when you consider what John is preaching. Because there we are told in verse, in, in verse 5 that he's proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of their sins. 
But Luke tells us more. Luke, Luke 3, verse 7 to 9 says this about John's sermon. It gives us an example of John's sermon. Listen to this. Luke 3, verse 7 to 9. This is what John said. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. He's saying to them, it's like talking to believers. I turn up here and say, you brood of vipers, do not presume you are believers. That's what he's saying. Let's read on. He says this, For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And then he says this in verse 9. Even now the axe is led to the root of the tree. And every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John is telling them that they must repent and show their faith by actually being baptized. They must show that publicly, not because baptism saved them, but it's a public show that they have repented. They must do that. If they don't do that, they'll burn in hell. That is essentially the message of John. As I thought about this sermon of John, I thought, John would not be very welcome in many pulpits today. I think members wouldn't call him to be their pastor. Do you think they would? I don't think they would. John's message is tough. His sermons are fiery. And he has been commissioned by God to proclaim this. And you know what's even worse? His wardrobe. <laughs> I mean, John's wardrobe is very strange. John is not coming to church wearing Prada or Visage. He's not even going to Primark. John wears desert wear. Look at verse 6 of Mark. Now John, uh, verse 6 of Mark 1. And now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. And then locusts and word and I think members will have a problem hiring a pastor like that who comes in dressed like this. What is this all about? Why is John dressed like this? Well, it is reminding us, first of all, that John is a simple and a humble man. And he has come in the power of the prophet Elijah. A book, I don't know whether you've studied very well, is 2 Kings. Listen to what we read about Elijah in 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8. You don't need to turn to that, but you can look it up. You can easily find your way to 2 Kings. It says this. They answered him. 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8. They answered him. They're describing Elijah now. He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And he said, it is Elijah, the Tishibite. John has come with exactly the same dressing as Elijah used to dress as the prophet Elijah. If you like, that, what, what this is telling us is that John, John is not Elijah because, you know, this is not, it's not, it's not Elijah reincarnated. Because why? Because in Mark we're going to see Elijah appear. He's going to appear with Moses at the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, John has come in the power of Elijah. You see, John is all that is old and everything that is new. John stands with one foot in the Old Testament and one foot planted in the New Testament. You see, at this time, the prophetic voice of God has been silent in Israel for 400 years. 
And now God is speaking again. And he's speaking through this man, John the Baptist. This is what the Lord Jesus has to say about him. Uh, Luke 7, verse 38. Uh, Luke again. This is what he tells us about what Jesus said about John in Luke 7, verse 38. The Lord Jesus says this about John. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. None is greater than John. John is a great servant of God. Why? Because God has appointed John to point people directly to Jesus. Get this. This is the greatness of John. John's greatness is rooted simply in the fact that, not even his birth, that God has appointed him to point people to Jesus. To say, you know, Isaiah could talk about the Messiah coming. Ezekiel could talk about the Messiah coming. But John has seen the Messiah and can say, this is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist is great by the grace of God. But as I thought about the life of John the Baptist, I realized that it teaches us an important truth, brothers and sisters. It teaches us that God graciously includes us in the work of serving sinners. Do you know God doesn't have to use John the Baptist? Do you know that Jesus does not need a PR agent? He could have done it himself. He didn't need anyone to prepare his way. He's God. God doesn't need John the Baptist. But God is gracious to Israel, first and foremost. Because he doesn't want the public appearance of Jesus to catch them by surprise. He wants their hearts prepared before Jesus arrives on the scene so that they can welcome him. Oh, friends, as I think about this truth, isn't God so gracious to us? Day after day, he makes the word of God available to us. He has put people in our lives. He doesn't, he's not a God who's catching us by surprise. He's making his word available to us. And he's doing that to Israel. He sent them John to prepare them. So when they hear Jesus, they can repent and fully trust in Jesus. And God, by his grace, by his grace, has given John the privilege, the privilege of pointing people to Jesus. To say to sinners, here is the Lamb of God who saves us from sin. If you are a follower of Jesus this evening, if you have truly reached that point of surrender to Christ, I want to tell you that you have the same privilege as John does. And do you know what? You have an even greater privilege than John has. Why? Because you cannot only, don't just point to Jesus the Lamb of God. You point to Jesus the resurrected Christ. You live on this other side of Calvary. And this is why the Lord Jesus qualifies his statement. Do you remember I read for you from Luke 7 verse 38? Well, if you keep reading that verse, it says this. This is how Jesus it says, I tell you, Luke 7 verse 38 says, I tell you among those born of women, none is greater than John. But that's not how Jesus ends it. Jesus continues and says, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. Why? Because we live on this other side of Calvary. 
And we are able to point people to the resurrected Christ. Oh, beloved, do you realize what a great privilege God has given you? Do you realize that? As a follower of Jesus, God has given you many gifts to use for his kingdom. Some of you have been blessed well financially. Some of you have gifts of administration, teaching, encouragement, hospitality. Some of you have been just given the gift of time. You've got time on your hands right now because you're not in the rush to do other things for whatever reason. Oh, there are many gifts God has given you. Above all, friends, God has called you as a believer to advertise him to the world. Regardless of other gifts he's given you, you have that. He has come and lived in you, and he has called you to live and talk in a way that points people to Jesus. You know that wonderful verse from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, which says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? Why? Why has God done all of that? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So you may live in such a way and talk in such a way that it points other people to Jesus. Do you realize God doesn't need you? Do you realize that? He doesn't need me. He doesn't need any of us. And, but he has chosen to work through you because he's what? Gracious to you. You know, sometimes we forget what a privilege it is to serve God. I forget that. I can easily find myself sometimes mourning, oh, this and that. Sometimes we as believers, we give God our worst times. Our worst times. As if God owes us. We treat sharing Jesus with others like it's a burden to us. We give God our worst time. We give the best time for ourselves. We, we want people to pat us on the back for attending church. We do. We want people to recognize that. Say, I'm here. Yeah, thanks. We want that. We want people to see us as we serve. Because we think God owes us. And when God asks us to do something difficult, we easily mourn. And I see myself, my own sin in here. That self-focus, that forgetting of what a tremendous privilege to point people to Jesus, to share the gospel. And this passage is reminding me and it's reminding all of us that God loves to include us in his work and we must see it as a wonderful privilege to serve him with our lives. So are you taking this privilege seriously? Are you thankful to God for it? Are you actively looking for new opportunities to serve God even more? Or are you just content with just doing a little bit for God? I see so many of our members, so many of our people in our fellowship sometimes just come in. They come in the morning. Quickly they are out. This is a church. It's such a burden to them. It's such a burden. I spoke to someone some time back. They were telling me, you know, coming to church, I feel it's a burden for me. I know that don't tell me, but I see it. But I see my own sin in this too. 
And I ask myself, are you taking this privilege seriously? Because you see, friends, if you're not actively seeking to use the gifts God has given you, you need to urgently repent of the sin of ungratefulness. Repent. Repent. Because it's a wonderful privilege God has given you to serve Him. To be His child. Repent for being ungrateful to Him. And thank God for the privilege of serving Him. And ask God to use you mightily like Job. Or how we pray for a John the Baptist in our time. For God to raise up someone like that. A man so possessed by the gospel that they will share Christ with such passion. John is a great servant of God. And that's the first truth we learn in this passage. Moving on a bit more quickly. The second truth we learn is that Jesus is the greatest servant of God. Jesus is the greatest servant of God. If you like, John is a great servant of God, and Jesus is the greatest servant of God. Now, Mark is a fast-moving narrative, as I said this morning. And so, after a brief description of John's desert wear, Mark tells us that John is preaching Jesus. Let's look at verse 7 and verse verse 8. After he preached, saying, this is what John is preaching, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but you baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John does not mention Jesus by name here, but we know that he is talking about Jesus in verse 7. Because these verses point us to Jesus in verse 9, isn't it? When Jesus comes to be baptized by John. John, if you like, is saying, Jesus is a greater person than me. Jesus is greater than me, first of all, as a person. As a person. Look at verse 7 again. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I. We might say Jesus weighs spiritually heavier than John. To the point that John is a nobody. Because that's how verse 7 finishes. The struggle with sandals, I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Now, at this time, the task of loosening sandals is performed by the lowliest of slaves. But John is saying, I am not even worthy to do that for Jesus. I am not even worthy to do that for Jesus. Now, many have looked at this verse and they've said, what a great humble guy John is. <laughs> I think that's interesting. I, I, I don't take that route. There's no, it, it sounds humble, doesn't it? And John is a humble man, I've said. But that verse doesn't tell us John is humble, friends. Let's be serious. That verse tells us John sees it as a fact. Jesus is God. Yes, there's a degree of humbleness there, but John is simply telling us a fact. The person who comes after me is greater than I am. Why? Because Jesus is God. To acknowledge Jesus as God is not you being humble. It's being the creature. Recognizing the creator. Jesus is God himself. The creator, as the creator is greater than the the creature, so Jesus is greater than John. And Jesus is greater than John. 
And because Jesus is greater than John, rather, is greater than all servants of God in the past. Because you see, if there's no, if, if among those born of women, there's no one greater than John, then it follows, doesn't it? That if Jesus is greater than John, he's greater than all the Old Testament prophets. Greater than anyone who's born today. You see what Mark is telling us here is this. Look, we can line up Adam to John the Baptist. From Adam and all the great saints of old up to John the Baptist. We can line them up on one side, you know, like they do in boxing. Put them on the scale together. Okay? They won't even be worthy to stand on the same scales as Jesus. Jesus is the greatest. That's what John is telling us. Oh, 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 no, that's what Mark is. That's what John is telling us. That's what Mark is telling us through John, so to speak. Oh, this is Mark's recording of John's words. Well, why is Mark saying all of this? Remember what we said this morning about the the context. We spent quite a bit of time explaining the context of these verses. Remember that Mark is writing to believers in Rome under Nero's persecution. He's writing to encourage these believers in Rome. And you know what he's saying to them? You don't need anyone else apart from Jesus. Put yourself in the shoes of these believers who are being persecuted. Do you remember what I said? As Mark is writing this, what's happened to the servants of God? Paul has been beheaded. Peter, the, self, the, the, the leader in, in Rome, has been crucified upside down. And put yourself among these saints. They must feel shaken and beleaguered. They must feel ourselves. Our leaders are gone. Nero is breathing after us. But as they now read these words, they can almost hear Peter himself saying, because I said this morning, you know, this Mark's gospel is really Peter's gospel, isn't it? And they can almost hear Peter himself saying, don't look to me, Jesus is the greatest. Don't look to Paul, friends, Jesus is the greatest. As Jesus is greater than John, Jesus was greater than Peter, Jesus is greater than Paul. He's saying this to them to encourage them. And picture them now as they read these comforting words with Nero breathing on their neck. What do you think is their reaction as they read these words? These Christians on the run, as they are reminded that Jesus is the greatest. I can see tears of joy running down their eyes. I think some of them are overcome with a deep sense of the weightiness of Jesus. I can see some of them perhaps bowing down in worship as they think of their beloved Jesus, who did not spare his own life, but gave it up for them. I can see how excited they are. They are just happy to know. Yes, Peter has gone. Paul has gone. But we have Jesus. And he is sufficient for us. I think they are so happy. And this is a reaction also we must have. As we think of this passage. To know Jesus is to know the greatest person alive. And it should cause us to bow down in worship of him. And yet, if we are honest, we don't always think of Jesus with such deep wonder. The thought of his dignity and worth rarely causes us to weep. He has not always been like that. 
It has always been like that in your life. Once Jesus made your heart sing. Do you remember how once perhaps you wept before Jesus? The very thought of the King of Kings caused you to weep. Do you remember how you once cried out to Christ to deliver you from sin? Do you remember how once you couldn't wait to talk to Jesus? You would spend perhaps hours to just talk to him. Everybody's experience is different, but some of you remember that, don't you? You believe Jesus had all the answers. Now, when you see someone in tears in church at the thought of Jesus, you're wondering, is she okay? I mean, what's all the weeping about? Why are you weeping? It's only Jesus. Why are you weeping? When you see a brother weeping, perhaps as he's speaking of mighty things, you're skeptical. Are those real tears about Christ? I have to say to my shame, it's a lot of my personal confession as I go through Mark, to my shame I have to say I'm like that. I'm like that. Are you like that? I'm like that sometimes. And Mark is calling me here back to Jesus. He's saying, beloved, let us repent for how literal we think of our Savior. Let us cry out to God together for, to see his greatness of grace. Let us see the wonder and joy of Christ. Mark is saying. And here is why we must do that. Here is why we need to repent of thinking little of Christ. Because Jesus is great for us. We need to do it because Jesus is not, is not just the greatest in general. He's the greatest for us. He's great for us. He's great for us. For us. And that is our final truth here in, in Mark. In, in this passage, no, not quite Mark, we're not done yet. In, in, this evening, the, the first truth is what? John the Baptist is a great servant of God. And we've seen that from verse 4 to verse 6. And, the second truth, and Jesus is the greatest servant of God. We've seen that in verse 7. And the final truth I want to share this evening is that Jesus is the greatest servant of God. Why? For us. For us. And we see that in verse 8. You see, John has not finished telling us why Jesus is the greatest. Jesus is the greatest because of who he is and because of his work. Let's read verse 8. John says, John the Baptist, I have baptized you with water, but he, that is Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. To summarize what John is saying there, John is simply saying this. All the work that I'm doing, it is a trailer for the real events. All this great revival you've seen, it's not the real deal really. This is a trailer for the real event when God himself comes in the person of Jesus to do the work. And when Jesus arrives, John says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now the word baptism which we use in the English language, comes from the word baptizo, which means to immense. Jesus, John is saying, God the Son has come to immense us in God the Spirit. Jesus, if you like, has come to dress you with the Spirit of God from head to toe, to wrap you around in the life-giving power of the Spirit of God. So that it is him living, not you living. 
Jesus has come to fulfill the prophecy of Joel 2, verse 28 to 29, of God pouring out His Holy Spirit on all who follow Jesus. John is saying, this is the greater work of Jesus. The point John is making is that Jesus is God who has not only come to rescue us from sin, but to share the life of God with us. This is the servanthood of Christ. It is a self-giving Christ. Jesus, if you like, uses his greatness to serve us and save us. I'll leave you to work out which serve I'm talking about. And he saves us by plugging us, after he has saved us, by plugging us into the very life of God. When we are born again, we now live and breathe God. We become baptized in God. And this baptism of the Spirit happens at the moment you are converted. The baptism by Jesus here is really the immensing of yourself. Like, like we do in baptism there, when you, you have died to the whole life, you show. Well, when you become a Christian, you have died to your old past. And the Spirit of God now resurrects you. He envelops you as you are being converted. If you're a true follower of Jesus, you have already been baptized in the Spirit. Now, that's not to say, that is not to say, God doesn't pour, still continue to pour out His Spirit. We, we still need to ongoing surrender, so we still ask for God to fill us in with Himself continuously, isn't it? It's a mystery. We have all the Holy Spirit we need, yeah? But the more we want to surrender, more we, there are times also we want God to work more powerfully in us. So they continue infilling. Some call it continue baptisms. I mean, the phrases always become tricky. The, the baptism really is something that happens at conversion. But throughout, you must cry out for God to send His Holy Spirit. If you like, some people say we must go on asking for what are called Pentecostal experience. Not in the sort of crazy way sometimes it's used. But in a way of the Spirit Himself being poured out afresh on believers continuously. So we pray for a revival, don't we? We pray that God will pour out what? His Holy Spirit again to revive the church. So you are baptized in the Spirit at conversion and you continue to experience the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Mark wants all of us to see that to know this Jesus is a lived experience. To be in Jesus is to be immersed in the life-giving power of the Spirit. If you are trusting Jesus this evening, this truth should comfort you. Because you see, Jesus has drawn you to the very center of the eternal triangle of God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. If you are truly converted, you now draw every spiritual breath from God. Think about that for a minute. The Spirit of God is in you. You are a person who's born a sinner. But Mark says, in Christ, you now share a life with God, who is completely perfect and holy. God has done this not because you deserve it. Even now, you still sin against Him. Even now, you doubt Him. Even now, you are a hypocrite in so many ways. And yet, the truth of the matter is, if you're genuinely born again, you are submerged in His Holy Spirit. 
God is still saving you. S-E-R-V-E. Save. I have to say that right. God is still saving you. He's still looking after you, I should say, with his life. With his very life, the spirit himself. His grace is flowing to you from the wounded side of Christ. This is the goodness of Jesus for us. It is telling us no one can satisfy us as Jesus does. No one will give us more of himself than Jesus gives us. No one cares for you as Jesus does. And no one has made his life more powerfully available to you as Jesus does. If you are a true follower of Jesus, rest in this amazing fact. You have a complete Savior, friends. A complete Savior. Not a half Savior. A complete Savior. Jesus is great for you. So rest in him. That's what Mark is saying. He's saying to those Christians who are struggling there in Rome and and, and the persecution, he's saying, rest on him. You have a complete Savior. And he's saying the same to us this evening. And as we come to the end of this passage, let us always remember that resting in Jesus as our greatest is only possible if we have truly repented from sin. All of what I've said is meaningless if you have not truly repented from sin. Because the truth is that this is truth is only for those who belong to Christ. For those who seek clear evidence of true conversions. Those conversion, those growing in surrender to Jesus. You see, there are many who claim Jesus is great. But in fact, other things are always greater in their lives. Family, jobs, sexual drive, hobbies, egos. And as I said at the beginning, it is easy for us to appear publicly that Jesus is the greatest in our lives. But in our inner lives, we make little of Jesus. There is no true surrender. So as I encourage you to to, to look to Jesus and rest in him, I also want to challenge you, as I always do, to examine your hearts carefully this evening. To ask yourself, am I a person who is truly growing in surrender to Jesus the greatest? Is Jesus increasingly great over my family? Is Jesus increasingly great over my work? Is Jesus increasingly great over my relationship? Is Jesus increasingly great in my passion to serve him? Is Jesus increasingly great in the sort of friendships I make? Is he dominating all of those things? Because you see, friends, I'm not saying we should be there. We should be growing up to there, either. Because if you're not able to see some growth in these areas, then you may have a reputation of being alive, and yet you are dead. And if that's your condition, then you are not a true Christian. A true Christian is a new creation fashioned in the image of Jesus. If you are what you have always been, you are not converted. And so cry out, don't end there. Come in total repentance. Because even now, the Jesus, our greatest Savior, the greatest Savior, has his loving arms open to you. He's waiting for you to repent of your sin and surrender to him completely. To give you his very life. 
And if you do that, it will mention you in his life-giving spirit. And you'll be able to say with all of us this evening, Jesus is not only the greatest, he's the greatest for me. And I pray that all of us leave this building with that confidence. To say, I know this Jesus. He's not only my God, he's my greatest in everything. Amen.